Every now and again, creative minds, young companies, startups, and outstanding entrepreneurs challenge the status quo. They reshape a whole industry and change the way we think about certain products and services. And this usually happens when a brand follows a higher purpose. I'm not talking about profit margins, taking care of investors or cutting costs. I'm talking about big stuff here. Brands that want to change the world a bit have real impact in whatever way they can. I'm happy to have one of those founders on my show today, Finnegan Shepherd. Hey sweeties, sweet spotters and sweet people, how are you? If you want to find and share the sweet spot of your brand, you've come to the right place. I'm your host, Mark Zeus, and for this episode of the Sweet Spot Podcast, I'm talking to Finnegan Shepherd, CEO and founder of Both End and the creator of Limbs. After his own transition some years ago, Finn realized that the clothing market doesn't cater to the needs of transmasculine, non-binary or FAB people. So, he decided to found his own clothing brand, Both And, and rethink fashion for this audience from scratch by designing and producing clothing without any formal training or previous experience in the industry. By learning from his own experiences and listening to the needs of his customers, he created an innovative brand that is not only successful, but really loved by the audience. In our conversation, we talk about his entrepreneurial journey as well as his creative endeavors. Because studying philosophy, literature and fiction doesn't only give Finn a unique perspective on entrepreneurship, but also inspires his creative project Limbs where Finn investigates a single word every month in writing and in collaborations with visual artists. This is a great talk for all founders and entrepreneurs to draw inspiration from and get inspired on how your own challenges and creative fuels can add purpose to your business. So please enjoy my talk to Finnegan Shepherd. Welcome to the sweet side. This is the Sweet Spot Podcast with Mark Zeus, investigating entrepreneurship, purpose, and the creative life. Sweet people, it's my pleasure to welcome today to the show, Finn. Hey, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Other than my uh, my hunger, which I just talked to you about, and yeah. my lack of being able to <laughs> keep a consistent diet in my life, I'm doing exactly. well. Okay, perfect. Let's hope you don't pass out <laughs> during the <laughs> exactly. interview. Fingers exactly. crossed. I, I, yeah, I, I've got my juice box. Exactly. So the listeners already know if this episode is only 10 minutes long, you know what happened. <laughs> so yeah, if I'm, uh, uh, you're in New Mexico right now. Uh, which is kind of a special place, as we talked about in your life. So what brought you to New Mexico? What's happening there for you? New Mexico is a really uh, intense energy. I would say like it, it vibrates at this like high, very high frequency, which draws a very wide swath of diverse people. That, mm -hmm. That's like right off the bat, you cross the border from Colorado into New Mexico and suddenly just the energy changes. I'm not a particularly like woo-woo person. Yeah. I wouldn't say energy is a word I use that much, but it's, it's palpable here. So I've always felt this draw and this intrigue. And I originally tried moving down here when I got a fellowship uh, to do an MFA at the university. Mm -hmm. And as I told you, It was a point in my life when I really thought I had checked all the boxes. I really, at that point in life, thought it was possible 
to sort of check all the boxes and then get to that plateau where everything was like taken care of and was easy. And it's like, I had, I was engaged to this wonderful partner and I was working on my manuscript and I was going to be a professor and I bought this old, beautiful classic car and we moved into this mining village in the mountains of New Mexico and we didn't have any service and we're kind of like off the grid and it was so romantic. Um, and I was also going by Becca and she, her pronouns at that time. And then in the course of about six months, I completely overturned my life. First, I ended up, uh, we ended up opening up our relationship into this very tumultuous uh, polyamorous situation. Mm -hmm. I began to realize that uh, I was going to medically transition. I realized I wanted to leave academia. Uh, my engagement fell apart. My car kept breaking down. Uh, it was just everything, everything kind of burnt to the ground. Yeah. And I ended up leaving New Mexico, going back to Colorado uh, for a while to get surgery and to kind of figure out what was next. And that was the beginnings of this the scene for both and and these things that I'm doing now. But it really, you know, first time around in New Mexico, total shit show. Second time around, also a shit show. And Jesus. now I'm back for the third time. So this must a, be a uh, really magic place if you go there the third time after what happened before. Amazing. It, either magic or it just feels kind of inevitable. I don't yeah. know. It just okay. feels like I'm supposed to be here. And and I and and the the practical reason is I have a partner who's at the university now, a, a different one, yeah. a third partner in the saga, <laughs> who's very wonderful and I'm very happy with her. And I do, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think New Mexico is interesting um, in the sense that it is very affordable and it's a very diverse place. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of states ranked uh, with like the highest trans population, New Mexico is like number three or four, I think. It's oh, really wow. High I totally didn't know um, that. I I think, you know, we are socioeconomically mm -hmm. uh, pretty disenfranchised and a lot of people are trying to flee the South and the Midwest and Albuquerque is kind of this crossroads, I think, where it's like you can get there pretty easily. It has so much diversity, like ethnically and historically, mm -hmm. and you can actually afford to live here. Um, so it's not like it's not a thriving hub like, you know, Silicon Valley or New York or whatever, but it's got its own kind of cool different thing going on um yeah and i'm feeling more and more proud to be here i get on calls with journalists or whoever investors and they're all in the same places always yeah. the same likely candidates and they're like where are you i'm like i'm in albuquerque they're like what i don't think i've ever gotten on an investment call with somebody in albuquerque like it's, it's just amazing. out of nowhere so so yeah trying to carve out a little space for myself and and for my company here That's amazing. So we're going to talk about your company and every other thing you do creatively, entrepreneurially. But I'm really interested since we started at like a, like a very dark time in your life. It's like if I look at you today and the things you, you create today, it's like a phoenix from the ashes kind of story. So is there anything you can share with people? Because I know that a lot of creative careers and also entrepreneurial spirited people have gone through ups and downs in their life. Uh, me personally as well divorce, exiting my company, a lot of things happening all within a short amount of time, which sometimes is like really, it boils down to a certain time in your life when everything happens at once. So was there something in you like a creative or maybe even already entrepreneurial spirit that kept you going? Or did you know there was, this is just a dark phase, there will be a better thing coming? Or what, what, what kept you going strong? That's a good question. I mean, I think I am neurochemically very blessed. Like my 
my neutral state of being is very happy. I'm awesome. not prone to anxiety or depression. So I'm very lucky in that regard. Um, but I would say that I, when I look back on it and the kind of advice I like to give people now is the, the whole notion of seasonality really speaks to me. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so simple. But I do think we live in an age where what we enjoy the most is the moment right after struggle. That is what like all yeah. of social media is. That is, I mean, arguably what all of marketing is. It's like that split seconds difference between recognizing, you know, challenge and struggle and then how we overcome it. You know, it was Phoenix from the ashes Absolutely. or a transformation picture of yeah. me before top surgery and me, you know, ripped now on testosterone or whatever. And in a way, I can't really blame people. Like that is, that's a driver. That's what keeps you going. If you didn't think you'd reach that point, then what would keep you going. But I think the more we are all able to see that life isn't actually built in that time scale, that like, if you think about it in terms of agriculture, it's such a good metaphor, but it's like, Mm -hmm. there's a time of the year when the fields literally just need to be bare and like, you just leave them alone. You just chill out and eat what you've harvested. And then there's times to start like preparing and taking out the rocks and then planting and then nourishing and then harvesting. But everyone's always looking for that, you know, the first day of harvest. That's what everyone is fixated on. And I think A, just accepting that is not how life is, but then B, I think an even more meta and probably impactful way of thinking about it is like all of those stages are necessary. Like if you can't even enjoy the fallow field part, you have to at least accept that on a meta level, it is necessary for the harvest phase. Like you cannot get around it. The only way around is through. And so when you can do that and when you can allow those different phases to wash through you, I think it's just a lot easier on yourself um but but there's definitely those times when it's just it's it's just hard and you're just gonna yeah. have a shitty day and yeah. you know lean into that too a hundred percent because i think what you say applies to many different fields in life in, in for life in general but also working in a creative field you always just see the top highlights the best case practices the five-star reviews everything and i think media consumption and the way especially social media works has a huge impact on how we how we develop a view on life and what expectations on life could be like it's not your perfectly uh instagram feed all the time and you have to fail and you have to fail maybe a hundred times before it works out once and that's a huge part of entrepreneurial life creative life life in general so yeah but as you said it's like the You can say there's a seasonality to life or you there's a German saying you live life forward and you understand it looking backwards. So it's kind of like this. You're always looking for narrative structures in your life, and but you can't understand them looking looking ahead. You just have to go through it, I guess, and make sense of it later. Yeah, the, the, I was thinking about this just the other day. The Greek conception for time is the image that you're walking uh, backwards into the mm-hmm. future. Very yeah. similar for the for the german conception but uh i think english speakers are very we're very future fixated we Mm -hmm. think that we actually have any kind of sight into it and we just don't i also appreciate this greek idea of two kinds of times chronos and kairos like the 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 linear time that just runs by like an hour clock and then you have like the the life events, the more hedonistic approach, the more um, work towards things that you will remember, right? You have like mm-hmm. milestones in your life. So I also appreciate this idea of two 
conceptualizations of time. It's just shocking that the amount <laughs> the Greeks got right, yep. you know? There's, yep. there's a reason we're still talking about them. We can complain <laughs> all we like, but it's pretty wild what what happened in that space and time. I mean, you had it in Germany too. That's mm -hmm. a fascinating thing. Those historical moments where you just like suddenly have this explosion of thought and it's just like the historian's task of like, what happened there? What led exactly. to that? Um, which, yeah, we could go off on tangents there, but we'll, we'll, we'll rein it back to, 100%, to the yeah. personal, but it's the same in the entrepreneur's life, right? Exactly. Like you do. Exactly. I mean, I'm very aware I'm in a burst right now. I'm like, this burst isn't going to last. No way. Like, who knows? Maybe tomorrow it crashes, maybe a month from now it crashes. I don't, I don't know, but it, it's not going to be like this forever. Yeah. But you're going to enjoy the ride. So, but gotta. talking about the Greeks and touching on history and all of that, that Let's circle back to your uh, time in academia when you, uh, you're not only a writer, you're also um, a classicist, meaning you studied ancient Greek-Roman civilization, languages, literature, philosophy. And on your website, you have this wonderful sentence that I need to quote. You have one third of a PhD in philosophy and three quarters of an MFA in fiction. So let's talk about a little bit um, what your life in academia looked like. I started off uh, absolutely loving academia. For my undergraduate degree, I went to Sarah Lawrence and it was like one massive intellectual playground that mm -hmm. I couldn't get enough of. Absolutely loved it. And I think because of that experience and also because of what I perceived my skill set to be and perhaps a failure of imagination, I didn't really think there were any other options but to go into academia. It's like, well, I like literary fiction and I like studying dead languages and I like philosophy. Well, I yeah. guess the only, you know, and I like people. So teaching made sense to me. There, there are a lot of ways in which academia on the surface uh, made sense. Mm -hmm. I think the really sad reality is I would have loved to have been a white male academic a hundred years ago. I think the yeah. way that academics or upper education is being structured now, especially in the humanities, um, I think it's completely falling apart. I don't think it is a, at all what I was hoping it to be or to have any kind of the impact that I imagined it would have. And so I, yeah, I, I graduated from college. I spent a year just kind of working in wine, working retail, applying to graduate programs. I got into Cambridge, which was the enemy school of philosophy from the school <laughs> that I had been trained in. Wow, okay. I thought I was going to be just like great missionary and bridge academic you know gaps between yeah. these competing schools but then i got to cambridge and they just like quietly disapproved of me in their british way for the year and i did the, the one third of a phd thing it's a little tongue-in-cheek i didn't completely bail i stayed for the masters i got the masters which i got in that first year it was an mfil and then um by mutual decision uh i i left <laughs> i wasn't going to stay on for the phd because it really yeah that gap between what i imagined that life would look like and what it actually mm, was was yeah. just staggering so then i tried to heal my soul by working as a carpenter under this like ancient carpenter for a year and then in that year i got accepted to do this mfa in new mexico so then i came down here did a year of that wrote a manuscript uh and then i got sucked off into my first Startup Venture, which was actually a philosophy platform, mm -hmm. uh, a professor of mine from undergraduate and another alumni approached me asking if I wanted to help co-found this online 
philosophy platform, which really sort of wet my interest. So it was kind of my gateway drug. It was like academia, but in the startup world. So awesome. I was like, I could try that. Awesome. That sounds yeah. interesting. And that that failed, hard fail. That was my first experience of trying to build a startup and it not working for a variety of reasons. But I think I kind of caught the bug at that point. Okay. I was like, wait a second. Um, the way my brain works and what I'm interested in is applicable to this other space. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the space is actually a lot better suited for me and me for it. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing. It can be kind of whatever you make it to be. It's very challenging. It's very people-oriented, very creative. And and so, yeah, so then I, then I got really into sort of UX research stuff. I started taking mm-hmm. some certificates in that, thought I would just work for other startups, and in the midst had my idea for both and. And so then I started working on that while I was also just doing contract work and like content strategy and UX writing stuff for for other startups. And um, and here we are a couple couple years later. Wow. So but before we dive into what you do today, you said this philosophy platform, it failed. Is there some some learning you wanna you wanna share? What kind of platform was it? What what can you say today? What did you learn? Why did it fail? I'm very sensitive to this because as far as I know, the other two co-founders are still working on it. Um, I think the best way to put it is that there's always a tension in entrepreneurship between good enough and perfect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with what we were trying to do, which I think could have added so much value to the world, because what we were really doing is before COVID hit, deeply thinking through how do you deconstruct what is going on in a pedagogical moment in the classroom and reconstruct it for an online space rather than assuming like, Oh, just like film a class and put it online. And that works. It goes like, no, like what is actually occurring in learning from a philosophical level and how can you create a new form of that? That will be better online. We have like a 95,000 word Scrivener document like that breaks down pedagogy and all these different philosophies of pedagogy and all these really interesting tech innovations you could do to create this. Um, that if we had been willing to even put like lo-fi prototypes out and start testing them and like building a customer base, I think would have um, had a high likelihood of success and also had a really high impact on people's lives. But there was a real disagreement between myself and other members on the team of what Mm -hmm. was good enough to start putting out into the world. Um, And I think I got to a point of frustration where I was like, we can't argue for three months about a single paragraph on an about page we have to like we have to get things into the world even if it's not the perfect way of saying it we'll never be able to say it perfectly because that's that's this interesting conundrum in philosophy is um if you could just say it you would say it exactly i'll leave it at that um and so it yeah it presents a really interesting problem uh not just from a marketing perspective, but I think from a, yeah, from a deeper philosophical perspective of like, how do you, how do you create something that is still genuine, but is accessible to the masses? And I cared really deeply about it. I learned a lot in the process. I really hope they succeed, but, uh, I, I reached a point where I was like, um, I don't really know any better because it's my first startup. I haven't worked on other startups, but I just have a sense that like, this is not a pace that is feasible. Yeah. Also, I mean, that's, the the famous saying better than than perfect and working with mvps and having little sprints and all of that i mean it's not an it's not a very individualistic 
problem that you had to solve but yeah okay that's that's super interesting and my second question is what did one year of carpeting do to you <laughs> i really loved it similar to entrepreneurship i think there's actually a lot of analogies in the sense that you have no boundaries on your life you're sort of always working and never working like you have maximum flexibility but you're always working in academia and and the startup world but with carpentry it was the exact opposite you know i would just show up I was studying under this just awesome legend of a man. He was like 70 years old and could barely see, but everything by touch and just understood carpentry so well. And you just like work for a set number of hours. And at the end of the day, a wall would exist mm -hmm. and the wall didn't exist before. And then you would go home and you wouldn't think about it. And something physical exists in the world. And that was so existentially calming. And I think also just feeling more, empowered in my body um and like capabilities mm -hmm. i think now having transitioned i think there is something masculine going on there but just this feeling that like yeah if something goes wrong like i can fix it you know the, the toilet started leaking the other day and it's like well i've never fixed a toilet but i'll just like watch a youtube video and then take apart the toilet and i managed to fix it and that's an amazing, amazing feeling but i wouldn't have had that confidence if i hadn't spent this year learning these very basic skills but like It's a working vocabulary. It's another language, and it's one that I don't think enough people speak today. So it calmed me. It grounded me. It made me more embodied. Um, it was very existentially calming. And it was a pretty good compliment to writing. You know, I'd wake up early in the morning and work on my fiction and then, you know, go move things around and hammer nails for eight mm -hmm. hours. Um, but I do think long term, as much as I love it, I am quite a cerebral person so when you know when the next opportunity came along it felt right i love that you had this experience because it's a lot of creative people or brain workers um crave manual labor and just this experience of i put something physical in the world it can be gardening it can be putting up walls it can be like in my case i need a paint on real canvases no digital formats nothing it's just so sometimes it's a it's a very existential need to build something in real life that's amazing yeah I, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, there's, I feel like there's a reason all poets end up writing about gardening. I feel like you yes. just inevitably, if you follow the right path in life, you inevitably garden. That's just, <laughs> that's my statement. That's my line that's from quote. this podcast. That's a freaking yeah. quote. Amazing. There, there we go. Just mic drop. We're done. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. That's a wrap. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So I definitely need a need a gardening professional for the next episode. Thanks for that for that hint. I totally go for it. I can hook you up. I'm in New Mexico. There's a lot of them here. Amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. Okay, but first let's circle back to your entrepreneurial journey. You already talked about now you founded both and which is a clothing brand for transmasculine, non-binary, and AFAB people. And it's I think it's something that's with your story as a founder very connected to your own journey and drawing from your own experience so maybe you can tell us how you got the idea and and how you turned this idea or impulse into a company i think it's one of those really classic entrepreneurial situations where i had a problem and i wondered if in solving it it would help other people yes And I had a problem that people in power wouldn't even think to address, which is why I think I was able to kind of be first to market in this space or developing this white space, which is like, it's very simple when you think about it. It's just, if you're trans, you have different body proportions than cisgendered people. Mm -hmm. um, I often show this little um, 
drawing to investors who are all cisgendered because most people in power are cisgendered. But it's just sort of like, so for me as an example, I'm like five foot four, which is average for a person who was assigned female at birth. And I've had top surgery, so I have a flat chest. I've been on testosterone for a few years, so I have more muscle and my fat's moved around a bit. The bone structure never changes. I'm mm-hmm. never going to get taller. The proportions of my arms and torso to the widths at my shoulder and chest and hips is never going to change. And the result is that clothing just like simply doesn't fit. Like, and that's even before you layer on this issue of like, how do you want to be read or perceived? Exactly. Like, it, like you, you have to start with fit. And what I saw the fashion industry doing is like, literally just window dressing. They're trying to solve it from the entirely wrong angle, which is like, oh, we need to like, we understand, you know, there's this emergent market, especially with Gen Z. Let's throw a trans person in a marketing campaign. And it's like, if the clothes don't fit, they don't fit. And it doesn't really matter that you happen to have somebody who identifies as trans or non-binary in a marketing uh, campaign. Or the other response has been like, oh, let's have this whole like agender clothing market. Let's just make everyone wear really baggy sweatshirts. It's like, that is not innovation. Sweatshirts were always available to whatever gender. That's That's, just like having us all wear trash bags. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so... Like it started from this very evidence-based design, which to me was just very intuitive mindset of like, okay, I have this problem. I'm going to go out and interview and survey as many people as I could. And I've like since done that with thousands of people to figure out if A, this is a shared problem. And then B, if what we struggle with and what we wish existed is similar enough that you could solve it from a design perspective. And it very quickly became evident that there was like a resounding yes to both of those things. Um, which was really cool. But then there I was as a person with no background in business and no background in fashion and $5,000 in savings and an idea and was like, okay, I'm just going to like reinvent the wheel in fashion. Why not? And in retrospect, now that I've learned what I've learned about the fashion industry, the bravado there is insane. It is such a complicated industry. The Mm -hmm. barrier to entry is so high. There are a lot of reasons people haven't like made this kind of innovation before, but I got really lucky and worked really hard and happened to be in the right place at the right time and did the classic, you know, how do you eat a whale? Just one bite at a time and don't look up kind of a thing. (laughs) And it's been, you know, precariously working out. And also it's like the classical hero's journey of a, of a founder because you are an industry outsider and you just have this urge and this real problem you discovered Uh, best case scenario because it was your own problem and you solved it and then you went apparently all the right steps which sounds amazing so let's dive into this um what kind of clothes do you provide today do you design them yourself do you manufacture them how does your clothing line look for someone who doesn't doesn't know both and yet yeah so we started with a kind of mvp collection Mm -hmm. of three shirts uh t-shirts we found in our interviews that kind of surprisingly to me actually t-shirts was the most voted thing design challenge for us to fix um i think because it's kind of the base of a wardrobe and if you just have like a good t-shirt like you can wear that year round and that makes a really big difference in terms of helping people feel better Mm -hmm. in their body um and it was also kind of a relief to me because it's an easier thing from a design perspective than some of the things we're challenging now um or taking on now So it really literally started with me compiling all this evidence and then thinking through all the things that have worked for me in shirts and the things that haven't. And so things that I've noticed of like shirts that have a higher collar are really great for covering binders, which like 
to pull off what they need to do in terms of flattening the chest, they need to come in really tight around the neck. And hips is like the major, hips is always really the issue proportionally. And what are design things you can do to create illusions of squareness from the waist into the hips, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, the, the quality of fabric you use, like a heavier weight cotton is going to hold structure rather than cling. Things like that, which is like, if you've experienced them in your body, you've noted them, you look for them. But if you're, you know, a 50 year old cisgender fashion, does that like, why would you think of that? It would never sure. really occur to you. Um, so I basically like just compiled these three base designs, literally cutting apart shirts that worked and like stitching them together and pinning them and making these base designs, which were then put into tech packs, which is sort of like the specifications of them mm -hmm. uh, with flat sketches and then started working with manufacturers. And there was a while there that I was like trying to figure it out all by myself, but then I got very lucky and I got introduced to this amazing designer in New York who has been sort of a creative director, design director for a lot of brands over the last 20 years. And he just fell in love with the project in uh, we really hit it off and he ended up just building a whole team to come work for us pro bono. Wow. Um, so for the, so for that whole first year, 2021, we've had this uh, pro bono four person design product development, sourcing production team in New York. And, um, and, and the flow of it is still, it still starts with me doing research and talking to people, figuring out what people really want. And then I bring sort of the concepts to them or um, we build out, you know, the initial prototypes. And then they are ultimately manufactured overseas and then shipped to uh, the UK where we have distribution and to myself in New Mexico where we have US distribution. Um, so we have six styles right now. They're all upper body wear. Um, yeah. That was what we really wanted to focus on first. Um, and then we have a number of other things in the development pipeline that will be released in the summer into the fall, sort of depending on funding. If there's any really wealthy people on this call who want to invest in us, let me know. We'll be able to produce more things. Um, but yeah, we wanted to just like really fix one problem at a time. So now we've kind of like crushed that first issue. Now we're moving on to the next design challenge. Amazing. And you also release new fashion items in so-called capsule drops. So is that part of the strategy to release single items or packages at one time? Or is this also something like a marketing thing? Like it's a, it's a limited edition capsule drop. It sounds super exclusive. I must say that it sounds perfect. <laughs> It's a bit of a mix. I mean, uh, I would like to claim it's all marketing and scarcity mindset. The flip side of that is like, we just couldn't afford to produce that much really at any one time. So normally minimum order quantity is around 300 units per style with factories. And so our very first batch, we just say 300 of each of the three styles because that's what we could afford um, to just kind of test it out. And I, I really did think that first batch would be like an MVP beta that we would get a lot of feedback on and then we need to make a lot of improvements. But there was very few things that actually needed to be improved. It was wow. the, the, the community response was pretty wild. We had overshot the dimensions of the shoulder a little bit. We did bring those out a bit. We're still working on like perfecting the collar because um, that still needs some fixes. And but but for the most part people were really happy with it. So as we've grown, we have kind of a twofold strategy of we test out new styles in very limited order quantities. And so it's like limited edition, it's exciting, it's new, there's all the hype around that. Um, but it's also kind of beta, it might not hit, mm -hmm. but, and we're not as invested in that. And then when we see that certain styles are doing really well, 
then we double down and we manufacture more, we do more colors. Um, and that becomes sort of like over time what we're imagining to be kind of just like the classic both and wardrobe that will live in inventory on the website. Wow. So what I like about this, you have such a strong brand purpose and I think both and answers needs and desires of a previously unaddressed audience. So and I think drawing from your own experience and also the surveys you talked about, um, I feel like you have a very strong bond with your clients and you always are in better mode and research mode. So if anyone from not the startup industry who likes to be more in touch with clients and learn about their needs, how do you actually conduct this? How do you keep in touch with clients and research things and learn more about how to improve products? No, it's a good question because um, I know a lot of people are trying to do this right now. You know, community is such a buzzword. And I genuinely don't know if I have best practices to offer or if I just kind of have this magic sauce from happening to stumble upon a very acute problem in a very interconnected word of mouth community, being a very sort of charismatic talkative person who like we don't have you know, here's an example we don't have an app that handles returns mm -hmm. if people want to return something or exchange something they email the hello at both and and like it's me who's responding it's not somebody who's like i've hired for ten dollars mm -hmm. an hour like i am literally i'm on zoom calls showing people different fits and sizes for them to figure out what they want if somebody's returning i'm figuring out why they're returning it what we could do to improve um, if people leave really good reviews, I'm following up and sending them free product to like thank them for it. Like I'm just like constantly, I, I, I think CEOs can really quickly assume that like customer care or whatever you want to call it. Even the words we have for it are really derogatory. It's like, that's like a minimum wage outsourced job. Yeah. Whereas I think at least for the start, like, one of the most important things you can do as a founder is be like the first line of contact with your customer because you just know it better and you care Absolutely. more than anyone else. Um, so it's like I, I was lucky because of the nature of this community and because of how acute the pain problem is. But it's also just been like common good sense to me. It's like don't design in a vacuum. Don't pretend to understand what people want. Like run surveys, ask for feedback, be open and honest with people. If they want to talk, get on a call with them. Like the, the, there's all, all these things that just strike me. It's like, just simple it's just be a good human who cares about the people you're trying to serve um and don't like don't just try and automate it i mm -hmm. i i remember hearing a story i think the like ceo of um chick-fil-a or something i don't know if this is the right <laughs> one but i remember hearing a story about a ceo who got to a point in his life where he came in for 40 hours a week and all he did was sit at his like huge mahogany desk and reply to fan mail that was it that was all he did all as right. a ceo okay. like handwritten letters <laughs> which on the one hand, it's totally crazy, and I'm not sure I would ever go that far. But on the other hand, like, yeah, if everything else was running, like, maybe. Why not? In, you know, it, it, in, in the dark moments when it's really hard, it is that email I get from somebody who's like, I just wanted to say, I got your shirt today, and I put it on, and I looked in the mirror, and for, like, for the first time in my life, like, I saw myself. Like, I get emails like that yeah. most days, and that really is what keeps me going. And, like... I don't want somebody else to be on the front lines of that. That's like, that's my bread and butter. That's beautifully put. And also I can relate to that very much because it applies to 
selling physical products as much as it applies to being a service provider. Like in my design studio, it's the same. You could go to a big agency and then you have the great pitch idea from the uh, creative director, CEO, whatever. And then after the first pitch, you get the interns and you get the the artists in training or something and you will never get to the real needs and the real feedbacks. So I think no matter what kind of entrepreneurial journey you're on, staying in touch with the clients and the base of what you do is a very important part. Maybe we all get to the mahogany Chick-fil-A autograph table one day, but I think in building it up and really being invested in this, you can learn so much, especially if you want to innovate. I mean, even if you have a yeah. running company and you want to look for chances to tap into a new market, get new clients, innovate on products or services, you always have to go back to the front line and really understand what's going on. You can't outsource that kind of entrepreneurial creativity. Yeah. Hey, sweet people. Are you also looking for the sweet spot of your brand? Let's go on a creative journey together to find what makes your brand unique. I offer coachings and workshops to define brand and marketing strategies and to find a meaningful brand story. And once we found that, we can share your sweet spot with the world with outstanding designs and your own engaging media products. Let's find and share your sweet spot to get the clients you really want and turn your customers into fans. Sign up now for a free coaching call on my website. And now let's get back to the show. I also think it maybe weirdly comes from, it might be a byproduct of imposter syndrome um, in the sense that like a, like a happy consequence. I think academia, one of the most insidious things about it is it really trains you to undervalue your skills. And so I'm, I think I've lived with this cognitive dissonance where I don't have low self-esteem. I know I'm intelligent. I know I'm worth a lot. And yet when I've been in the world trying to find traction in my career, I've never felt like that interface in the yeah. way that like to say I deserve, it feels a little like arrogant, but sort of it's like, I know I have so much to give and it's like never felt like there's like a space in the world that slots into. And so I think there's a certain level of humility and imposter syndrome that comes with that. And whereas other CEOs, you know, maybe they've been climbing that ladder for 10 years and they have mm -hmm. those skill sets and they don't, they like, it wouldn't occur to them that they should, sacrifice their time and focus to be on chat with customers or whatever like for me it's like like i ain't got nothing i'm starting from the bottom like first time founder <laughs> i don't have a clue what i'm doing i know i'm good with people and i know i need people that care about me and this company and this product so like i'm gonna do whatever it takes and Absolutely. it just like doesn't occur to me to feel like i'm above that you know and i think that's kind of the sweet spot of staying humble and also not falling into the trap of academia always being stuck in that Dunning-Kruger effect curve that you think, oh my goodness, there's so much out there. I don't know anything. I'm just a, a dwarf on the yeah. shoulder of giants or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah. we, we touched on marketing already and I, and I sense that you're a writer and also storytelling in general plays a huge part in what you do with both and your brand. So what's, what's the approach in terms of brand purpose, communication, and storytelling? How do you approach that? I, I knew I wanted, there were a few things. When I started both end, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I, I like the best way I can describe it is like I had a few North Stars. Like I had intuitions about what I had to follow. One of them was that it had to be like aesthetically top of the line. Like when you look at the competitive landscape, 
we don't really have competition, but like what you could call our competition, no offense to them, make being trans look like you're going rock climbing. Like it just is not aesthetically appealing. There's nothing aspirational about it. Um, there's nothing sexy about it. And it's kind of sad because it, it feels in a way like we're still asking permission for our bodies as trans people. And it's like, like all you deserve is a brand that like accepts you for who you are rather than a brand that like accepts you for who you are and also celebrates it. And it's like, fuck yeah. Like it's not just okay to be trans. It's also sexy. It's extraordinary. It's beautiful. Um, and I am not a visual genius. I would say I'm like visually particular. I definitely have an opinion. I know what I like, but I'm not a genius. And so the first thing I did was I called my two friends that are the best visual geniuses I know. One of them, Liron, is like a literal rock star in the design world. She's the creative director at Buck in LA now. And it's like, she's just in a Twitter ad yesterday for this whole NFT art collaboration thing she's been doing. She's just, she's really killing it. She studied under Debbie Millman. Um, and I called her literally just to ask what font I should use for our logo because I didn't know anything yeah. more about yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time. I was like, I, I've come up with a name on a hike. What font should I use? And I guess she was the first person I pitched. And within like 10 minutes of talking, she's like, all right, I'm going to do this for you. So she came and like developed our logo and our typography and our color system and like all that brand guideline stuff and still serves as like our advisory design director. And then I had this other friend, Misha, who's just an incredibly talented photographer. And I really wanted there to be storytelling. I thought that a, from a research perspective, that was going to be how we were going to understand the need. And I also thought it would be how we would build community and make this about more than just selling a product. And so I called her up and said, you know, I want to start doing this photojournalism series, kind of like a Humans of New York for this community. Mm-hmm. And she got on board um, and she, she resists the title of co-founder. She's not a very businessy person. She's definitely an artist, but she, like, she's been my co-founder. She's been with me since day one. She's doing fulfillment in the UK. She's out there like organizing photo shoots in the height of COVID in winter in London. Wow. Like she's, she's really doing it. And I mean, her, we've won branding awards and stuff. I mean, what her and Liron have been able to do in terms of our aesthetic has um, definitely set us apart and been an enormous point of leverage for us. And, and so, yeah, I think there is like the humility of like, I knew I needed this thing and that I couldn't do it. Um, and I didn't have any money. So uh, my, my piece of advice, make friends with people who have different skill sets from you. I think we increasingly just surround ourselves with similar people, people mm-hmm. with the same skills. And like, I didn't do it for this purpose, but in college, I was just like a very sort of open-minded person who liked a lot of different people. And so I made these friends who now have such diverse skill sets, like my CFO, like, thank God I have a friend who's good with numbers and branding and photography and just like, just like everything was literally, I just had friends and I had cared about our friendship and poured time and energy into it. And it was a good enough idea that when this came along, they're like, Oh yeah, for sure. Like for some equity, I'm I'm in. I'll work for years without getting paid on this. Um, so I got really lucky there. But I do like that is something I tell people these days of never underestimate how important it is to just connect with people who are really different from yourself. That's that's such a good advice because I know that in terms of staying within your comfort zone, getting positive reinforcement about your opinions, what you do, it's it's. It seems very comfortable to stay in your bubble, be it professionally, uh, in private life, whatever. But I also draw a lot of so much inspiration and drive from people 
from very different ways of life, different industries, different mindsets, people that you can also in a friendly way argue with them. You know, that's always an opportunity to grow. And especially if you apply it to business, as you just put it perfectly, yeah, you should assemble some kind of Avengers team or something of different skill sets. That's really what pushes you forward. So and you're also a writer and a storyteller. Do you have some kind of strategy? Do you have an, an outline? Do you think in terms of a hero's journey or a, a buyer persona journey when it comes to, to what you communicate in campaigns and on your website and on social media? Or is there any, any overview or is it really on a day-to-day -day basis still exploring what are good ways to tell the story of the brand? Honestly, I probably should have more of a strategy. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I've definitely learned a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, I think everything is that mentality of try it, test it, learn from it, move on. With the storytelling, um, there's definitely been some... At first, when I was interviewing people, I was really focusing on clothing itself and what they struggle with. And, and at a certain point, I realized okay, I've like really validated, like I'm hearing the same thing over and over and over again. I don't need to really keep hearing this. And I'm interested in hearing a broader spectrum of stories. And so I started shifting interviews more to this photojournalism lens. And I usually start with a very broad, open-ended question that leads in very interesting ways, which is what is important to you for other people to understand about your relationship to gender? And that just goes in a million different directions. And I love talking to people. I'm very quick at typing, so I can just like transcribe what they're saying, what we're talking. Awesome. And then I just reread our interview afterwards and I piece together a quote and pair it with a photo and bada bing, bada boom. So that's like the only strategy of just like really trying to create a space for voice and visibility through that series. But everything else is just, um, you know, whatever is popping into my brain with the latest yeah. ideas around how to communicate messaging. I mean, we, we do have more stuff planned out this year. We're doing our first campaign video end of March and I am both and campaign, which I'm pretty excited. We're shooting out in LA and that's a bit more scripted, a bit more of a concept behind that. Um, but I, yeah, I just kind of always let the community guide what we do and what we put focus in. It's amazing. And also it's, it's, I mean, It's the beginning of your marketing campaigns also but what you just described there is your own media format in a way you found a channel you have certain editorial ideas on how to input questions to get great results how what visual and and text components you need and that's a whole uh, that's an amazing media product in a way that you created there i really appreciate that which is also guiding me to the to the whole other point of your life which is writing which plays a huge part in your life and so i was really wondering having three quarters of a phd in, in fiction writing and a bit of philosophy background how does that come into play in being an entrepreneur and being a creative entrepreneur i think that makes a huge difference in being able to put things on paper um, getting it out of your head either in, in interviews and in, in speaking or also in writing What do you think? Is, is that some kind of superpower that you can use? I think I think it is. I think I'm only really now realizing it because I'm still crawling out of the hole that academia dug me yeah. into. Um, there's, you know, so there's my literary fiction, which to me is like, that is the most sacred part of my life and therefore my the most sacred part of the day. My first two hours every morning goes wow. into my writing um, because... 
that's the most important thing to me. So it's the first thing that comes in the day. Um, although I do feel very released now. And there's a great irony, which is, you know, not lost on me that I spent a long time, you know, wanting to be a rich and famous writer and have that be all I do. And then I got to a point in life where I started like diversifying what I was doing and building both and and stuff and um, didn't put pressure on writing to be something that you know, financially supported me or led to anything. And then, of course, when I took that pressure off, that started growing. Now I have this great literary agent in New York. I finished this manuscript that a number of editors are interested in. It's like nothing, you know, nothing set in stone. And even if it gets published, I'll probably make very little money and it'll probably sink without trace because those are just the stats and in the world. <laughs> but it's sort of like, you know, I started getting published in the Berkeley Review and the Dublin Review and like all these things started coming together when I stopped making it be the only thing in my life. Um, but it's still the most important thing. So that's how I spend my early morning. Sometimes I spend it on limbs, which to me is like writing, but also the more academic philosophy part of my brain. Um, and then I get into my regular day where those skill sets, I think, are absolutely relevant. Um, the way that they manifest Here's, here's what I think the problem is. I think academia trains you to think that there's only value in what is hard. And when you then go and try and apply these skill sets, like being a really good communicator, being able to synthesize a lot of thought and uh, you know boil that down to the question behind the question, which I would argue like all of philosophy is, those are such valid skill sets in the entrepreneurial world. And people will pay a lot of money for them. It never ceases to amaze me how much people will pay me to just write what strikes me as just like common sense. But it's actually magic to them in the way that coding is magic to me. Um, but coming from academia, because it's not hard, because being good at like debating ideas and synthesizing that information and communicating them is just like second nature, um, I think you come in with a sort of almost double perspective where you're like, but it's easy. So therefore it's not valuable. Um, and that's just not true. Um, there are so many, so many intelligent people out there who can't string a sentence together and mm -hmm. can't get in other people's mindsets. Um, and so like, I realize that's kind of like top layer umbrella. It's not like the the brass tacks of day-to-day, -day, how does it interface? But I, I just think, um, you know, what I have to offer at the end of the day is like a person who thinks deeply about things, thinks creatively about things, and is pretty good at coming up with ways to articulate them. And that sounds very simple, but that's actually a really, really important asset. That's huge. That's huge. Doesn't sound simple at all to me, but yeah. <laughs> So now you said you start your day with two hours of writing. And I'm also very drawn to investigate creative and entrepreneurial life circles and how people structure the day and if they're drawn more to routines and strict routines and sticking with them. What does what role does that play? Or if they're completely free, sometimes sleep in, um, get drunk in the afternoon and just see what happens. You know, there are two different ways to approach this whole game. And um, so if If you don't mind, let's dig a little bit around in your day. So you start with two hours of writing, which is a lot of time. When do you squeeze that Sometimes in? Sometimes it's get more up? like an hour and a half, but, but yeah, still, I'm not in that range. It's still, it's still a whole movie, right? So um, when do you squeeze that in? When do you get up? Is that the first thing you do? Yeah, first thing I do, uh, I usually wake up, depends on the season, like somewhere between five to six, usually depending on the season. Um, And for me, I mean, I've been writing 
almost every morning since I was 13. Um, so it's definitely a muscle uh, for me. I don't, and, and I've experimented. I, I put a lot of shame and pressure on myself at the point in my life when I thought I just wanted to be a writer of like, I should be able to write all day. And I actually think very few people are able to do that. I actually much prefer to have my day segmented out and use my brain in different ways throughout the yes. day. But for a long time, I was like, if this is the thing I love the most, I should do it for like 12 hours every day. But I found that golden zone of like an hour and a half to two hours I don't experience writer's block. I just like drop immediately into kind of a flow state. I, I think creative uh, writing for me is very adjacent to a dream state. So I can't talk to anyone in the morning. Like if even if I'm trying to make coffee and like my dad is awake, if I'm back in Colorado and he even says hi to me while I'm trying to make coffee in the morning, it I'm enraged. <laughs> it's like fuck off. Like I'm in my dream state. Do not yep. talk to me yep. because yep. I want to like slip from that into my creative zone. And then I slip into that zone and I stay there for as long as it feels good. I don't push it. And usually the feel good is about an hour and a half to two hours. And then I'm done. That's and amazing. then I'd like dive into the firefighting of, you know, regular day uh, existence. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty regimented person. Um, I don't write on the weekends. I write on weekdays and there, you know, occasionally things come up and have to miss it. But I think by and large, I've just found I'm a far happier, more fulfilled person if I make that time yep. in the early morning. And, um, and yeah, it really is a muscle. I like what you said that you stop at the moment when it feels right and don't force it. I recall hearing an interview from a um, German musician. He's in this legendary German punk rock band and he shared in another interview one time something that I really recall quite often because he said whenever he finishes lyrics or musical pieces that he writes, he always leaves at a point where he is amazed to go back to work. So, for example, when he writes lyrics, he always stops at a point where he's really exciting. It's hard to let go then, but you will start the next day with exactly that excitement and you can't wait to finish up that lines. And the same thing if he composes like 14 songs for an album, he strictly yep. always keeps two in his pocket. So for the next album, mm -hmm. he has these two tracks. He can't wait to start over again. So you don't yep. always have to shoot until there's no more bullets left. I really appreciate the idea of leaving a little surprise for yourself for the next day that keeps you motivated. So I really, I really like it. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing. I, yeah, I, do, I have this phrase that I say semi-facetiously, but not even, it's real. I like to leave a museum half an hour before I'm ready to go. Like every time. That's, that's awesome. my thing in life. And I think it's the exact same sentiment. I think when you try and squeeze the most juice or inspiration or joy out of something, um, You leave it dry. You need to leave something back in there for it to, you know, bud and create new seeds. So, yeah, completely on board with that sentiment. Awesome. Yeah, this brings me talking about writing in your routines brings me to the last big thing I want to talk about because you have a project on the side. You're co-founder of Limbs, a monthly exploration of a word, which is looks from the outside to me like a very artistic and creative way to explore a thought or a word. It's a combination of an image, an artwork, and texts. So what is Limbs? How did this amazing project come to life? Well, I've always just been really obsessed with etymology. I think that was probably like the intersection of my interest in writing and classics um, and in learning Greek and Latin and just, you know, as, as Anne Carson says, like scrabbling around at the roots of language. Um, to me, it was always... 
it, it was a way to always reinstill curiosity in my life. And so I think that was like, the, that's the core ethos behind limbs is like, I'm not trying to give people information or facts. I think there's plenty of content out there about information or facts. What I want is like this little doorway into curiosity that I could take a single word, I could use its etymology or its roots and the way that it's changed throughout time as this jumping off point. But I'm not like a linguist. I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to like truly talk about the etymology of words. This is information anyone could access just by yeah. Googling these words. But like, you know, when you start examining it, when you see that the word temple comes from to cut and you realize that it's related to these Roman augurs who used to go out and watch birds fly through a patch of the sky that they were like literally cutting a square in and then this like sort of metaphorical space then became a literal space on earth like that's so interesting this idea of yeah. like what we make sacred and how we have to cut it out from the rest of the world so i just i it's honestly it's like stream of consciousness for me it is not this laborious research-based task i just take a word i look at its etymology and i let my brain go wild of where it leads and then i bring on a visual collaborator to pair you know photography or illustration or whatever with the piece as a, like another way to think it through. Um, I will say in complete honesty to you, I love limbs and it's something that I struggle to give the time or attention it deserves um, specifically in finding artists to collaborate with because that's not my background and I've already used the friends I have. Um, I need a wider <laughs> network of artists to collaborate with and I'm so busy with my other projects that it's like every month I'm like, okay, I'm going to get a few posts ahead. I'm going to go find more artists and spend more time engaging online and stuff. And it's like, I've, I keep thinking, ah, maybe I need to let this one go. And then something like this happens where I have this small but very loyal audience of subscribers who really love it and like i've paused it once or twice and then people will reach out to me being like where's them like why are you publishing I'm like well if even five people are loving this and like i should keep doing it um but it's like i feel like it's the last vestige of the academic world in my life and i i really love it and i also am acutely aware that it's kind of like a little malnourished baby that needs to be given more in order to grow well, I'll definitely put this up in the show notes and um, happy to recommend yes, you do. to some artists. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll do this after the after the show. I'll recommend some people That's to great. you. And you know, I really love that you brought up the temple symbol because when I looked at limbs, I had to think about, really weird, but I had to think about augury, you know, this ancient Roman religion thing where they watched for omens in the way birds behave. And it's just so, it's so mystical and so abstract but it just strikes people with so much curiosity i really appreciate it so yeah people check out limbs subscribe oh, and um absolutely it's amazing yeah. well finn i only have two more questions left for you two questions I ask great and then i'll go eat my first meal of the day before the, i pass out you definitely should <laughs> okay it's two quick questions actually the first one is a question i ask all my interview guests um, is there something that you would like to recommend to you and the sweet people listening? What inspires you right now? Can be literature, fiction, movies, books, talks. Is there something you'd like to share with us? I recently read 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's mm -hmm. kind of like going through a bit of a literary like mania. Like it's sold out on Amazon. Like when are books sold out on Amazon kind of a thing. Wow. Um, but it... Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I think it will spoil it. 
I think it's the most soulful and existentially calming reflection on sort of the zeitgeist of how we think about time in the modern age of anything I've read. Um, And it's not that it says things that I had never considered intellectually. I think often what is profound to us is something that's very simple that just happens at the right time. And I think this book is that. It's like, it's not like reading Joyce, but it's reading a very well-structured, very thoughtful, very elegant piece of wisdom that 99% of the people I know need to hear right now. Um, so that's not so much artistic as just like read this if you want to feel better in your life and stop freaking out all the time. But like, we all need that. So like, read the book. Uh, holy shit. That's a pitch. Amazing. So <laughs> that's a, that, that's all we yeah, need to hear. Oliver Berkman, I, I want a commission. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And also I'm super interested in what's happening next. What's happening next with both and you publishing more writing, what's happening Uh, two limbs what can we look forward to both and i think this year will be hopefully a really big year in terms of uh growth in both in terms of reach and also in terms of like being out of i think like test phase of like do we have product market fit to like yes we do here we go here's more styles let's grow this so you know i have a i have a lot of hope around that also a lot of anxiety keeps me up at late at night and forces me to reread 4,000 weeks um but that's hopefully what's next there uh limbs you know hook me up with some artists and i'll double down on it i mean i think that's actually an interesting thing is i was originally doing it once every two weeks and then i had to switch to once a month because i couldn't find enough artists to keep up with it but it is the kind of contact that i think ideally would be much more regular i think it's sort of i don't know if you read brain pickings by maria popova but that's sort of like sunday newsletter that shows up and is like this consistent way of thinking in the week i do think you know mm -hmm. consistency is key so we'd like to build that out and then fingers crossed that the latest um version of this manuscript gets picked up by a publisher i i feel very proud of this manuscript and really hope it finds a good home Fingers crossed for all of your projects. We're definitely going to keep an eye thank out you. for all of your things. Finn, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be on it. And um, yeah, would love to help out however I can with all of your endeavors too. So let's talk. Same to you. Thanks. Wow, sweet people, that was my talk to Finnegan Shepherd. I really appreciated talking to him. And what will stick with me is how he folds in his experience from different fields, from philosophy, literature, writing fiction, into the storytelling aspect of his brand, and also how he used his own struggles and own problems to create something positive and to found a company on that. That's it for this week. I'll be back next Wednesday when I talk to Michael Ehrenwirth, the German brand ambassador for the spirits brand Linie Aquavit. We'll be talking about how to reinvent a traditional brand, what it takes to be a brand ambassador, and Michael is going to share some amazing drink recipes with us. Take care, people, and have a sweet week. This podcast is produced by Sweet Spot Studio. New episodes each week, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating and subscribe to never miss an episode. Find out more at sweetspot-studio.com.